Amen. Hey, let's get started today. I just since really even based on the songs that we sang, which I didn't know what songs we were going to sing, sing, sing today, but there was a lot of songs about grace, and that's uh, what we're really going to focus on today. Well, when people, you and I, meet someone who maybe we greatly admire, whether it's a uh, a politician or a move, well, whether it's, a, it's an athlete or a, anyone famous, and we want to meet them and we want to find out more about them, that's the very thing that really we want to meet them for, is to find out more about them. And so we ask them questions. We want to find out what do they like and what do they dislike? What are they passionate about? And what is it that really don't care about at all? Because we want to know more about them. We want, we want to find out kind of what makes them tick I think we think the same thing about God. We have met him, and so you are here today because you want to learn more about God and draw in closer to his presence to ask him questions, to find out who is he, what is he like, what is he not like, how does he operate. And so we study our Bibles, and we pray, and we intercede, and we learn, and we grow, and we read, and we come together on Sunday mornings to really get a bigger picture of who God really is. We are never the same when we are pursuing God. He constantly changes us. It was about three years ago when Guy Spicer, one of our elders, came to me, and he had a rhetorical question that he asked me. He wasn't really looking for an answer. It was one of those pondering questions. And he said, when the Bible talks about the glory of God, what is it talking about? What is the glory of God? And so in my mind, I went right to Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And I think if we look at the heavens, if we look at what we see here on the earth, the mountains and the seas and the trees and everything that's here on this earth, we can see just the, the glory and the majesty of God. We, we can see what God has created. When we look into the space and we see the moon and the stars and the planets, even Pluto, though he's been downgraded, we see the creation of God, and, and our minds just go like, wow, we have a big God because we can see what is created. And yet, just looking at the sun, just one of the objects that God has made, the sun, is 94 million miles from Earth. And it takes light from the sun traveling for eight minutes before it gets to the Earth. Realize if the sun had just disappeared seven minutes ago, we wouldn't even know it yet. You can take 330,000 Earths and put them inside of the sun. The amount of energy that the sun exudes every second is phenomenal. Recently, there was a, a group of buildings, 19 buildings, and they were all about seven stories high. They were all in a, in a very close proximity to one another, and they were old, and they needed to be destroyed. And so they took five tons of TNT to destroy those buildings, and in eight seconds, they went from standing to on the ground. Five tons of TNT, 19 buildings. When we think about how much energy goes off of the sun every second, you can measure it this way. Five tons of TNT, 19 buildings. If you had one million tons of TNT, that's called a megaton. 
Every second, the sun puts off this much energy, one trillion megatons of TNT. Every second. The heavens declare the glory of God. And yet when we read that verse, we would be amiss if we think the verse is saying the heavens are the glory of God, because that's not what it says. It doesn't say the heavens are the glory of God. It says the heavens declare or they proclaim or they announce the glory of God. And so if the heavens are not the glory of God, they simply declare the glory of God. If the heavens are not, if the mountains and the seas, if they are not the glory of God, then what is the glory of God? If you turn in your Bibles, please, to Psalm chapter number 8, we're going to see David's great psalm, and he really brings about this connection between the transcendence of God and the imminence of God. The transcendence of God is this, that God is beyond nature, he is outside of nature, he is not dependent on nature, he is the creator, and he is self-existing apart from us. That's the transcendence of God. And yet God is also imminent. See, there's an imminence of God, which means he does come into this nature and he does come into this space so that we can have a connection with him. And it's not a matter of, well, one week God is transcendent and another week he's imminent. He's sometimes far away from us and he's sometimes close to us. It's not an either or, it is a both and. He is both outside, huge, monumental, creates galaxies, and yet he is so close that he knows everything about us. That's the God that we serve. And Psalm 8 really talks about that. So we're going to see David talking about God's transcendence and his imminence. And he kind of flips back and forth for the first four verses. And then five through nine shows the intermingling of the transcendence and the imminence of God. Let's read Psalm chapter eight or Psalm eight. He says, Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants. You have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish of the sea and all that swim in the path of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We see that David is showing us the, the grandness of God and yet the closeness of God and how he mingles with us and gives us responsibilities and blesses us and saves us and encourages us. One of the greatest figures in all of human history, whether you're a theist or an atheist, one of the greatest figures in all of human history, which I believe doesn't get enough credit, is the figure of Moses. We look at this great man who had a very unusual start to life, and yet he was a ruler in Egypt and then, of course, was 
went out to the desert for 40 years and God appears to him in a bush that's burning, but it doesn't burn up and God speaks to him from that bush. Then he goes back to Egypt and he has a staff in his hand. If he throws it down, it becomes a snake. If he picks it up by the tail, it's back into a staff. He proclaims 10 plagues across Egypt under God's direction. Phenomenal things happen. He leads Israel out into the wilderness by the Red Sea and he holds up his staff in his hands and God provides a west wind and, and pushes back the waters and dries out the land and all of Israel got, passes through the Red Sea on dry land and then as the Egyptian army are pursuing them, God releases that water and crushes them and kills them. This is the Moses we're talking about. God tells Moses, this is what I want you to do. I'm gonna give my law to my people. Chisel out two pieces of stone Meet me on the mountain, and I am going to give you the law. And so he does that. He takes these stones that he takes with him, and God etches into those stones the Ten Commandments. When Moses comes down off of the mountain, the Israelites that were waiting were just, they lost it. They had made an idol out of gold. They were worshiping it. They were dancing. It was just a, just a ruckus that was not glorifying God. It was, it was debauchery. And Moses is so mad, he throws the stones down, the ones that God just inscribed. He throws them down and they break. Imagine going to God with that problem. Uh, uh, God, you know. But haven't you gone to God with those problems? I have. The very thing God gives us and, and we go, yeah, I mistreated that. I, I didn't handle that very well. Or am I the only wretched person in here today? But God's like, uh, all right. So he tells Moses again. He says, all right, chisel out two stones. Come up here. We're going to do this again. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. God doesn't talk like that. But then Moses makes a very interesting appeal to God. It's there in Exodus. And he says, now show me your glory. What an interesting request. Here's Moses, he's seen a burning bush, God speaks to him from it, he throws a stick down, it becomes a snake, he picks it back up, there's plagues, there's a parting of the Red Sea, and now God says, I mean, Moses says, I'd like to see your glory. What's going on? And let's look at what God says in response to that. God says there in Exodus 34, says, then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Here God says to Moses, all right, I'm going to show you my glory. And I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock, in that divot in the rock. And as I pass by you, I'm going to cover your eyes. You'll, you'll see he's revealing his glory to Moses. And what does he do? I can tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't, as he passes in front of Moses, he doesn't say, look at the mountains, look at the moon, look at the stars. What does he do? 
He says, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate, gracious, merciful, patient. I have everything that is glorious and I give it to you. That is the glory of God. It's not the mountains and the moon and the stars and the galaxies, though that is phenomenal. But the glory of God transcends all of that. It is the grace and the mercy that he gives us. Because it is so unlike everything and everyone else. We see this referenced again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. God is speaking to them. He says, you shall not bow down to them idols or worship them. For I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. And we look at that verse and we, there's, there's two elements there. He says, I'm, I, I punish the wicked to the third and fourth generation of the children of those who hate me. And we look at that, we try and wrap our head around it. We're going like, well, he, he punishes the children for the sins of the parents. The word says, yes, that's what happens to the third and fourth generation. There's that generational sin we see in many communities, generational poverty, generational rebellion against God, generational drama. God says, yes. But I bless a thousand generations to those who love me and care about me. We measure generation in sequences of time, but let's do it with a measurement of inches today. If each one of these is a generation, it's five inches tall, each one of these is five inches. So we have four generations. So we have what? Yes. Y'all went to public school, didn't you? You knew the answer. So it's about up to my knee. If we can say that that's four generations, God is wanting to show us this, this balance, to use a wrong word, balance, between four generations and a thousand generations. How then can we get a picture of a thousand generations? If this is four generations, a thousand generation is over 400 feet. And a picture is worth a thousand words, right? Let me show you a picture of what a thousand generation looks like. National Geographic has a long history with the redwood trees. We photographed 300 foot tall, 1500 year old tree that survived being cut and it's the scientists that study these trees this is their favorite tree it's the most complex architectural tree on earth that's known but photographing it is nearly impossible we spent a lot of time figuring out how to make this picture and ultimately we ended up raising cameras up into the canopy. We made it mechanized. We put three cameras on a dolly. There's a gyroscope. You drop it slowly down, and all of a sudden, we're making a photograph. So what you're gonna do is you're gonna build a tree 
out of lots of pictures. God is saying, I have so much grace stored up. It's, it's like a river that's been dammed, filled with grace. And God says, I'm just looking for someone to break the dam and to release my grace. That's how much grace God has. That's his glory. He said, but in order to punish like this, you've, you've got to actually provoke me to that. I've actually, I've actually got to be built up to do that. I've got to be provoked to show my anger, but my grace is easy. My grace is what I'm, I'm just poised and ready to unleash it on everyone who calls on me. Anyone who comes to me and says, God, please forgive me. God says, I'm showering you with grace. You're here today and you might say, man, I, but I've been a Christian a long time and it's still having problems. God never gets tired of showing everyone his glory and his glory is when he forgives us and he washes us clean. No matter how many years we've served him, he's still ready and poised, ready to just unleash on us his grace and his mercy. The Bible tells us in Galatians, in the fullness of time, God brought forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. And God knew that in his eternal wisdom, he needed to reveal to us that glory in a human form so that we would have a better, more familiar picture of it. And so Christ comes on the scene, the second trinity of God. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. That word glory means an absolute, perfect, inward excellence in which he excels by virtue of his nature. And what is his nature? Grace and truth. Not grace at the expense of truth and not truth at the expense of grace, but grace and truth. Some people are more interested in truth. Well, your sin and this is the law and this is what you're supposed to do and not supposed to do, it's truth. And they leave out grace. Other people are just focused on grace and grace only. Well, truth without grace is mean and grace without truth is meaningless god is balanced in both it's truth we're all sinners we've all fallen every one of us but grace says god's love is bigger than that god's love is bigger than that his grace overcomes our sin and that is the glory of god to overcome our sin in john chapter 2 after Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding, remember that? He went to a wedding, and they ran out of wine, and his mother Mary comes to him and says, hey, we got a problem, or they have a problem. And so Jesus turns water into wine. And look what it says in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Again, I think we can make a misguided assessment if we believe that turning water into wine is the glory of God. I mean, I just want to ask you a question. If you can create a sun, what's the big deal about turning water into wine? I mean, if we put it on a scale... 
What was his glory? What was his glory in this moment when he turned water into wine? What was the glory? It was how much he cared for that family. You have a bride and a groom and you have parents and family. And he's saying, I care so much for you. I care so much that this event goes well for you. I care so much and I, I will do what you need. I will do what you want. That's how much I care for you and my grace overflows onto you. It was a minor thing to turn water into wine. It was the glory of God to show them I love you and I care about you. That's what he does for you and that's what he does for us. God loves you and cares for you. And he says, I see what you need. I see what you're struggling with and it is my glory to help you. And if that means I turn water into wine, so be it. If it means I part a Red Sea, so be it. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes, God says, I want to show you I love you and I'm compassionate towards you. It was his love for the family that made all of the difference. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, the word says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. The sun is the radiance, the reflected brightness. That's the glory of God. It is his mercy. The mercy of God is the glory of God. The heavens, the, the galaxies, the mountains, the oceans, the deserts, all of that is kid stuff to God. His glory is what he gives to each one of us. It's what he gives to you. The day you were born again, you were flooded with mercy, and I would submit to you that you can be flooded with mercy every day because his mercy is new every single day. We see three aspects in closing. Mercy to the individual. That's what he gave to Moses. Moses was a murderer. Moses had done the wrong thing for a long time. But he gives mercy to that individual. He says, I have a plan for you and I'm going to give you mercy so that I can use you to accomplish what I want to do. And he floods him with mercy. And then he gives mercy to the family, this bride and this groom and their family, their parents. He just says, I see families, two merging families together and they have a need and I want to help them with that need. That's how much I love and care and how much mercy I have. And then he also shows his mercy to the city. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. This is the only place where Jesus describes his heart. There are other verses when he says, I'm the son of man, I'm the son of David, I'm the son of God. He talks about his mission. I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. But this is the only verse where he describes what motivates him and how he operates from the inside out. He says, I am gentle and humble in heart. The miracles that Jesus performed were simply to get the attention of people so that he could then reveal his glory, which are not the miracles. His glory is his mercy that he gives to us. The miracles are a way for us to receive his glory, his mercy. 
He said, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, you're tired, you're worn out, and I'll give you rest. You don't have to earn it. You can't deserve it. I just give it. I give my mercy in that way. And he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He didn't say, I'm going to throw my yoke on you. He didn't say, I'm going to reach out and grab you and I'm going to put. He said, take my yoke and learn from me for I am humble and gentle. And he says, you'll find rest for your souls. That inner place where we live, he said, I'll find, you'll find rest. I will give you rest for your souls. And verse 30 says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke he was referencing is, of course, that heavy wooden yoke that goes across the back of oxen that holds them together. And it was heavy and it was, it was, can you imagine just carrying wood on your back at chafe? It would just be awkward. He says, that's not my yoke. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's one of those, another one, an oxymoronic statement, a burden that's light. And he's just showing you, he says, what I've got for you is mercy. What I've got for you is love. And it's not gonna be a burden to you. I'm here to lift you up. I'm here to provide at a wedding what you need. I'm here to provide what the city needs. I'm here to provide everything. He says, I want to show you my glory and my glory is forgiveness, patience, kindness, mercy. And he's available to you right now today. For everyone watching, he's available to you right now. Maybe you've never talked to God. Maybe you've never said anything to him. Maybe you've never given God any attention, but he's right there listening to you when you do. He's observing you when you turn toward him. It's not because he's, he's insecure. It's because he's very secure. And he says, I love you. I want to show my grace to you. I want to give you my grace and show you my mercy. Would you turn to him right now? Would you say, God, I need you. Please forgive me of my sin. I need your grace. I've been trying to do this all on my own. I've been, I've been trying to struggle. I have been struggling because I just can't overcome this. And God is saying, you're right, you can't, but I already have. Jesus died on the cross to overcome the sin problem. Jesus resurrected from the dead to show us, to prove to us that he is more powerful than death. He's more powerful than sin. And so he floods us with grace. Can we begin to just picture his grace as a, as a huge balloon just filled that's ready to pop, just ready to just burst at any moment. And all he needs, all God is looking for is someone to just reach up and just touch that and say, God, please forgive me. And that balloon just bust with mercy. And that's what God does, showing us his glory by his forgiveness.